The Startup Executive is a podcast designed to help you become a well-rounded startup executive. The best executives have a good understanding of all aspects of the business. Join us each week to learn from a new go-to-market leader on what is important in their department and what it takes to become an effective startup executive. On today's episode of The Startup Executive, I sat down with the world's most interesting man, believe it or not. And no, I'm not talking about the Dos Equis guy from the commercials. I'm talking about Mr. Ryan Williams. He's the CEO of Reachable, which is an executive coaching firm, um, really focused on revenue leadership. And this episode was super interesting. So Ryan went from teacher to entrepreneur to sales leader uh, to filmmaker. And now we get to talk about his journey in building out the executive coaching business that he's running now. And it's really cool. Uh, Ryan's the guy that CEOs of $100 million companies call when they need help. So we also went a little off script in this one, but uh, mark my words, I think this is going to be one of the top listened to episodes. So let me know what you think. Let's go. Hey, Ryan, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Grayson. Excited about this. Yeah, I'm excited as well. I know you and I spoke a little bit and uh, I looked through your background. Very interesting stuff. I would argue potentially the most interesting guest we've had to date, uh, the most wide, wide variety of backgrounds for sure. But uh, I want to start with an easy question. How would you describe yourself uh, now to someone who's never met you? Well, that's a good one. Um, Typically, I'd say I help founders figure out sales. And depending on the stage or the context, then we go deeper, right? So, so that takes place within my advisory work, fractional sales leadership, as well as executive coaching, which is where I spend a lot of my time today is coaching founders, leaders, and teams. And actually, I have a company, Reachable, that is focused exactly on those, those three areas for uh, mostly B2B software companies, um, but a lot of different types of tech companies that we uh, that we spend our time with. So I guess I would say I help founders figure out sales. And, and you mentioned the core aspect and kind of like the main, main kind of thing that your business does was executive coaching. Could you just walk us through like what that means to you for someone who's never heard about executive coaching um, or maybe someone who has heard about it uh, what what is your version of executive coaching? That's, that's a great question, especially because there's so many people who use the term coach and it can mean so many different things. Um, for me, I'm a certified executive coach, which means that I spent time and training to get certified in a, you know, a coaching methodology. In my case, it's the Berkeley Executive Coaching Institute, the Haas School of Business in Berkeley. But when you think about coaching, it's beyond just where is the coach certified and what were they trained to do. You should also think about kind of what that work is you're doing together. And um, I think it's really easily put, you know, in kind of a spectrum. If you think about management as kind of very tactical, telling someone what to do, uh, put that at one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, put a helper who is asking the questions on what do you think you should do? Now, if you ask a question like that with a coaching hat on, what do you think you should do in a tactical management situation? It's going to come across really passive aggressive. I don't know, Grayson, what do you think you should do? Right? Like that, that can have a, 
uh, you know, set and setting is important here too, right? That's something that most people I don't think want to hear from their manager. Likewise, if you are in a coaching relationship and your coach is saying, I'm your coach, you should do it this way. Like my middle school football coach had very particular standards to how he wanted things done. Shout out to Randy Klinger if you're there somewhere. Uh, he had a way he wanted it done. And that is not executive coaching. That is very tactical, directional kind of coaching. So what we're left with is executive coaching is the is working with a uh, usually a leader or an executive who uh, is kind of mutually committed to the power of self-determination. And uh, to break that down, that is very simply put, we as coaches believe that you know the best possible outcome because you're closest to the situation. And you may need help finding that outcome. You may need help kind of digging for it around the options of what's available to you. But typically, someone who is successful with an executive coach is hiring a coach to help them figure out what it is they need to do to move themselves forward. As coaches, we are not therapists. We don't do a lot of going back into the past and why does this show up for you this way or 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 how does this past experience show up for you as a leader here? Although sometimes those types of things do come up, but the most important thing for the coach is to create a space for you as a executive to identify what your best path forward best best path forward is and you know particularly because we want you committed to the thing that you know is is right for you as opposed to the thing i know is right for you right if if i am coaching you and i say well you know on this sales call you need to say x that's that's really tactical that's back in the uh middle school football coach bucket but if instead i'm saying hey look Let's you and I evaluate the five options for a sales call or the five options for growing your team or the things that you're considering with the recent downturn. Then we're getting into a place where we're we're identifying what it is you want to do and what you're committed to. And how do I help you keep that commitment? Does that make sense at all? I feel like I'm giving you a lot of words here without a really succinct definition, but it's about creating the space for you to drive your own path. Um, and get there faster, hopefully. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And we'll, we'll get into, I think, breaking that down a little bit more. But it might be interesting to maybe go back a little bit. How did you become qualified to even be an executive coach might be probably what a lot of people who have never heard about executive coaching might think. Yeah. It's like, uh, so you're going to tell me like the, the ways that I need to solve my business yeah. or like what kind of just start from the beginning. Um, tell us just a little five yeah. minute background on, you know, how you became uh, who you are today. Yeah. Well, the path for me started, um, in, in, in terms of the, the current path I'm on, it started quite a bit before my career in tech and working in tech and venture back startups. I started my career in education and social work. So I've always been kind of committed to the helping profession. And then I worked at a nonprofit that ran out of money. And so I became a fundraiser. And after raising $15 million a year for about five or six years for the Boys and Girls Club of Chicago, I realized that some of the skills that I had that I wanted to build on could be things I can do in other places. And that was about the same time I was finishing up graduate school. I got a master's degree in social work from University of Chicago. And I had some friends living on the West Coast that said, hey, 
the Bay Area is really fun. We play golf in February, even though it's not L.A. weather. You will really like it because everything we do kind of touches technology in one way or the other. And that was really intriguing to me because that had been true about the classrooms I had worked in. That had been true about my upbringing. My father was a uh, early, early employee. is hard to say. He was working in a in a in a telephone company, but he was early to some really interesting projects. Like his team invented caller ID at, at the Bell system. So that was cool. I was around stuff like that. One of his jobs was to maintain a website about what his department was doing. Uh, no big deal today, you know, intranets are important to a lot of things, but he did this in early nineties. Right. So I got to go see like, Hey, what does this mean? What does this look like? Uh, visit him in a few labs and, and get excited about kind of where technology plugs in. And my grandfather was also really interested in technology in kind of an earlier era. So, so those things were already brewing for me when I ended up joining a technology company. And, uh, what I found was, as much as I said I didn't want to go into sales, that first uh, tech sales job that I had was really just like a recovery from the 2008 downturn. That first gig was, hey, how do I go and uh, you know kind of make a quick dent for myself personally? I needed to have a job. I needed to kind of recover from uh, you know post grad school. I, I'd done a couple odds odd jobs trying to figure out what I what it is I wanted to do, and I joined a startup that was about. 10 employees at the time. So I enjoyed, maybe I joined it at probably 12. Uh, and I got to see a startup go from almost zero in revenue to about 300 million in revenue. And, uh, over the course of five years and somewhere in the middle of all that, I became the first sales manager and I built out, a. $58 million mid-market sales team. I built a sales development team. I got to create a sales operation structure and some things that like, I don't think that if I had stayed, and kind of on my old path that like those things would would take years to uh you know be offered a chance to go build a team but here we were kind of desperately needing that and i had worked for a coo who saw that training was going to be important to us as we grew the sales team we grew the sales team from like five to 30 in the first year i was there and he said hey since you know teaching will you train everyone I said, great, happy to do it. And that training led to a few other management projects and it became, you know, I became the first manager and then I built a team and then the team did really well. And then, you know, I looked up about five years later and we had uh, 10 mid-market sales leaders responsible for roughly $16 million apiece. And eight or nine of them had all come out of my team. And so I kind of de facto created a management training program for fast moving tech companies. And I didn't do it on purpose. You know, I, I hadn't set out that way. We weren't passing out, you know, Dundies or other, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, gimmicky sales leadership type awards. But we created this culture where um, my team naturally went into leadership roles and they were prepared for that. And that led me to ask the question, is it possible to do this as a full time job? And, um, and at that point I had had a few founders reach out and say, Hey, I saw what you've been doing at, at the company I was at it was called AdRoll. It's not next role. Saw what you're doing there. Could that happen here? Could that happen here? And so, um, I became an advisor to a company called Envision as they grew from 10 to 2000 employees had a similar zero to over a hundred million dollar trajectory there. And, um, and then became a director of sales and later a VP of sales at a YC backed technology company. And that's where I realized that as much as I had been working towards 
being a VP of sales at a Series B company, about 80% of the job I didn't like. And I was like, oh, I worked so hard to get myself in this spot and I hated it. It was kind of like when I started my career as a teacher, I worked for five years to become a teacher and then I got in that job and there's something I didn't like about it. Um, So here I was finding the same thing. I said, well, I went back to what I learned building up sales leadership teams and helping, you know, ICs become managers and managers become directors and directors learn what they need to do to be VPs. I said, could I do that full time? And I met an executive coach who said, yeah, that's what we do in executive coaching is we help leaders be the best versions of themselves as coaches. I said, where do I sign? That sounds great. So that's the short story of kind of career wise of how I ended up there. And that was about six years ago. So I've been an executive coach for over six years now. I have advised and worked with probably 40 CEOs and another 50 sales leaders. Um, I've given talks at 20 uh, startup accelerators in 14 countries. And I've spent time with, you know, through that work, probably around four or 500 startups that are, you know, kind of really hungry for how do we build leadership best practices so that we can go and create velocity around the sales and revenue side of our business. I love that. I want to drill into it a little bit more because it's very, I guess, unusual for someone who is not in a traditional sales background to be able to come in uh, and not only learn sales for themselves, but also like train out the entire team and eventually get to that three hundred uh, million dollar number that you were talking about. Tell us a little bit more about that. Like, was there an extra coach or something that helped you out? Or how did you actually figure that out in the beginning? Or were you just kind of naturally good at sales and kind of naturally, intuitively uh, understood all these things? Like, how did you um, get past that initial start? I'm really skeptic of anyone who says, uh, this is a natural talent. So therefore I, I can't explain to you how to do it. I just do it. Now there are some things I do that are mm-hmm. not really documented. Right. But that doesn't mean that yeah. there wasn't a lot of help to get there. And so the first kind of, I'd say there's probably three things that helped me get to where I am today. One is a natural curiosity. I think that comes from being bad at school. I was bad at school. I got bad grades. Um, basically an academic disappointment until grad school. And then I went to top grad school, which was really fun to see the difference between the the other people there were supposed to be there. And I was like, I'm not supposed to be here, but I'm going to ride this out. (laughs) And so, uh, but what I'll say is that being bad at school also kind of fueled some natural curiosity I had of, um, how do I do it another way? Or how do I, you know, uh, everybody's solving this math problem. How do I, do it my way so I could still get to an answer and they'll let me out of the school. It was really, school was about how do I get out, right? Which is weird then to then decide to continue on, right? But that was something that that I think that natural curiosity led me to think of the same thing in in the context of, of business and specifically in a startup where that's all we do is how do we do this better? Right. So that natural curiosity, I think, definitely helped. There were a lot of times where I said, okay, without resources, what do I do here or there? Um, I don't think I'm naturally that good at sales, but I had a experience uh, where I was selling web development services and I was just barely under my quota on a regular basis. So I was I was really down on myself. I thought I'd get fired at any minute. And there was an older guy there, you know, this guy Don, who was 
he's not older, but he was probably senior to me about 10 to 15 years. So it was more of a big brother than a dad figure. Mm-hmm. But we, we caught up and we had lunch or coffee or something. And I, I just kind of like, I didn't, I, I didn't know who I could trust. And I just said to him, I was like, Hey, you know, I'm really, I'm behind on my number and I think they're going to fire me, but you know, I'm, I'm having fun doing the job because we were selling some really cool projects. And he said something really interesting to me. He, he won. He, he asked me what that, he was like, oh yeah, well, well, how have your results been? I thought you were doing good. And I told him that I was under quota and my, what my results were. And I was probably like five or 10% under quota. But the quota that was set for me was very different than what was set for the rest of the team. And Don knew everybody else's numbers and because he had been there longer. And he was like, what are you talking about? They set your quota higher to see if you could do it. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's not really the way that motivates me as an employee. So I was super pissed. But I thought, okay. Mm-hmm. That means that as bad as I think I am, I'm doing something right. And I must have done yeah. something right for them to even think that was possible. And then I also knew I need to get out of here as fast as possible and go work at a real startup. I'm trying to do the air quotes there because it's not fair to say real startup, but this was a professional service agency. It wasn't a venture-backed technology company that mm. I knew there was something cool about that environment. And sure enough, working in that environment brought a lot of rewards. It attracts some people who have some really interesting experiences. And so I'd say if I was to identify another piece of the kind of the road for me, I had a chance to work for some executives who had uh, scaled teams at Google. One in particular, I, I was a mentor boss of mine, Shresh Khanna at Adderall. When he came in, he came in with this uh, bias for big. And it wasn't like big for big sake. It was, okay, how big could this be? Um, well, how do you think without limits? And that probably came from spending time at, at, a, at a company that had very big budgets, that had big teams, that cared a lot about impact, just cared about changing the world. Um, now, I had loved the idea of changing the world. That's why I started my career in nonprofits. But here I was in a totally different environment with somebody saying, well, why not? How big could we scale that? And that was another really important lesson for me that said, okay, um, as I think about future projects and engagements, let me think with that same bias for how big do we go? What do we, you know, what are we actually trying to accomplish? Um, that same job, um, the the actual the COO who promoted me into like the training default training. It was promotion is probably overstating it, but the default training guy on the team <laughs> back when everything was really flat and level. Um, Peter would always say, what are we solving for? Like, what is the, like, that's the nice businessy way of saying like, what's the point, right? Like you, you're bringing me this thing, but what's the point? And so, um, so if I could point to those kind of three things as early experience, like being curious, thinking without a boundary and thinking just how big do you want to go? And then what's the actual thing you're solving for? Peter's question of like, what are you solving for? Again, what's the point? Like, why are you doing this? What is the end result that you're looking for? And that had really codified something that happened for me early in my career where I was doing kind of assessment as part of nonprofit fundraising. Like, we got to go prove to our donors that we're actually doing something with your money. And uh, and mm-hmm. so knowing about that stewardship and managing stakeholders, then back to an early management position, and that I had stakeholders again, and I had stewardship again, and I had a responsibility to my team of people. You know, we hired probably, I think I interviewed probably 230 people over the course of eight months, which is a lot of interviews, but um, we calibrated to like what good is. And once you know what good is and you know what you're trying to solve for, then you have the uh, a chance to go make a real impact, you know. 
and working for people who knew how to go find money yeah. so that we could go and grow to whatever size we needed to be. I mean, that's what took a sales team from, you know, probably five people or three people when I joined um, to, you know, 350 when I left. And and by the time I handed off sales training, it was about 350 reps. And, uh, and that was a side project. That was like 10% of my time was running sales training. So it was really crazy to see that. Um, I know there are a lot of people and you probably have had them on that have worked at companies that are bigger or scaled faster, or took over the world or had an IPO you heard about. But my experiences weren't necessarily those kind of flashy things, but to see a company go from zero to 300 million, you know, we were actually tracking daily revenue. So when I joined, I joined, we were probably doing like maybe $10,000 a quarter. Um, and when I left, we yeah. were doing wow. $750,000 the day that I left. That was our daily revenue the day I left. <laughs> and I was like, holy smokes, like what happened? But we were moving so fast that there wasn't a time to like inventory along the way. So, so it's really those three things, curiosity, think big, and what are you solving for? Yeah, that kind of uh, early experience can really shift your perspective on how big you can actually go. So I'm not surprised that you ended up going bigger and bigger after that. Uh, I'm interested in that uh, so the training that you developed and, and kind of used to go from ten thousand um, to those seven hundred fifty thousand dollar days. Did a lot of the principles that you developed back then kind of carry on with you, or did you kind of continue to refine um, kind of how do you think about training stuff like that um, as time yeah. went on? Well, um, like any good idea, that one was stolen. Um, mm. But I can tell you who I stole it from, so I'll give full attribution. <laughs> um, the training program that we built out was one where people who were in their first month were being trained by people in their second or third month. And people mm. in their third month were being trained by people who had been there six months. Okay. And so if, you, so if you're a sales rep somewhere and it's going well and you've been there like a year at a you know, decently small startup, but there's somebody who's been there two years – that person might have a reflection that's different than yours, right? Here's, you know, you know, essentially think about it like in a lot of our school experiences, like what do the upperclassmen know that the freshmen don't? Um, gotcha. And there's a lot of things, right? And so what, what I did was I, I, I controlled where people sat. And so when we'd hire new people, we'd control where they'd sit. And then the training programs they went through, they were trained by people that were just a few months in front of them. And so if you're thinking that this sounds a whole lot like an Italian preschool called Montessori, you're exactly right. That's where this came from. My mom was a Montessori school teacher. And so I knew that a classroom with first, second and third graders in it would have third graders who come around to the first graders, teach them how to write. That really happens. And that's been happening for, I mean, I think Montessori has been around almost a hundred years, if, if not over. Um, but the concept of, you know, putting people in these cohorts they can learn from and then we were very intentional about where people sat. And that that is definitely something that has come with me when I think about designing training. Like the you could go and hire a training consultant and you know and buy a bunch of books or choose a methodology and spend a lot of money doing that. And there's there are a lot of good programs out there. So I don't want to throw any shade that way. But I will tell you that uh, if you just start from what are the resources you have in-house, mm -hmm. things can get really interesting. Right. So a sales rep who's had some success, who's been at the company a year, they have two or three flagship accounts that you've got case studies on. That person uh, just needs to be asked, 
hey, how did you break into this account? Tell me the story. And if you ask with enough curiosity and you kind of write down that story, what you end up with is, here's how a deal was prospected. Here's how the deal was run. Uh, excuse me. Here's how it was won. And then here's how that deal scaled up, you know, and uh, meaning that things were working. And so the client started to spend more money and became a real anchor account. Well, that story exists at, at almost every startup that's, you know, has some revenue traction and new sellers should come in with that curiosity to learn those things, regardless of whether or not somebody puts you in a training program for that. That's a curiosity that I'll take to every job and, and every client engagement. Like I want to learn and being curious about what drives people and what keeps them, uh, you know, keeps their business moving, I think is part of what makes me the coach that I am, because I'm going to start with that curiosity and that default what's working. All right. Now that we know what's working, let's not throw that out when we decide, you know, or, or identify what's not working. So that's kind of how I think about it. And I don't know, does that answer your question on how to build training that scales? I mean, we didn't bring an outside facilitator in for like four years at that company. And yeah. we did, we did probably, uh, 98 training modules <laughs> across uh, two years of tenure. So yeah. you could be there at two years and still be getting training. And that just meant there was a small room that was going to see the CMO uh, about a particular new technology that doesn't really make sense to tell the newest employees about. Yeah, there should be access to information. Like, just simply don't keep stuff from people. They want to learn that or it comes up in a deal they're working on. Great. But um, let's not complicate it. Let's keep it to... Well, for the first month, you just need to know how to find great accounts. And we'll have your back once you get in a couple of those demos or a couple of those sales conversations. We'll have your back and we'll have some, you know, upperclassmen come and join those calls. Um, and so I think that's really fun that you can. Uh, it was a way to prove that you can do a lot with very little resources. And that was that was a real trip and, and a fun project to work on. Yeah, I love that. The I didn't know about the Italian, like I hadn't heard of that uh, Italian Missouri yeah. as like a concept, but I've followed like a similar concept in my own, like just progression, always trying to to look to people a couple years ahead of me and, and what I want to do and just ask them, you know, all of these different things. I'm interested though. So um, kind of paint the picture and maybe there's, there's not a good answer for this, but uh where does this fit in when it comes to executive coaching? So if you are working with the CEO, for example, um, what is that CEO's mm -hmm. like coaching stack? Like, do they have an executive coach? Do they also have like a therapist where they work out any personal issues? Do they also have like a personal board of directors? Like, how does it fit in, especially considering that, you mm -hmm. know, not every executive uh, executive coach is going to be able to say, hey, like Grayson, for example, I scaled you know, this services business and the technology industry, here's exactly like the things that you should be thinking about. Like how, how might an executive coach fit in knowing that not yeah. every single executive coach is going to have done um, that like two years ahead uh, type, type person. Like how do you, uh, yeah. I guess two questions here. How do you deal with that situation? And then how would you build out that like whole people supporting you from like a CEO perspective? Uh, I'm interested yeah. in your thoughts on both. Okay, so let's talk about this in two buckets. Bucket one is like, what experiences should a coach have to be bringing value to you and your role or, or, or coming into your firm? Um, I think there's a couple ways to think about it. For me, I think it's important that the person who is coaching has a relevant experience either with clients who are similar to you, 
who, uh, you know, like in my case, I, yes, I'm a CEO of my business, but I've never run a venture back company. I've never had to do fundraising uh, from venture capital. But there are some things I can offer because I've worked with 40 different startup CEOs who have from mm-hmm. all the way from seed to companies that have become uh, multi-billion dollar companies. And, and, and that, I think, has some things that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Am I the person you call when you're restructuring the board at Series D? No, I don't actually have a lot of ways to be helpful. Am I the person you call when you want to develop your plan for that and you need someone to help extract the ideas that you feel like you can just barely get your hands around uh, or just trying to wrap your head around what's going to happen next. Sure. That's happened quite a bit. You know, I, I've been in, in those situations and, and, and I've been told that that's been really helpful. So someone who's either experienced uh, as a coach for people who are in similar roles to you or who has worked in the job or uh, at the same level in, in other organizations that are similar to your organization. I think that often helps. Now that said, what you bring to coaching is is more important than who else is in the room. It really is. So if you come in okay. ready to be coached, um, I have seen it work where somebody who has no context on the business, no context on the level, has actually been able to be a really effective and helpful coach. And I've seen that in my own life. I've worked with coaches who are from a different path, different walk of life, and I've gotten a lot out of it. And I've also seen that on the other side. I was asked to come and and coach somebody who was uh, in a business that I didn't know anything about and at a level that I've never played at, at a company I've never, you know, uh, known about and a place I've never been to. And we still were able to get to some really meaningful outcomes. Um, so that I would just say is is about kind of mostly how you show up. So part one is how you show up as a client. Part two is having somebody who's been experienced with your population, uh, which is kind of a generic term to, to kind of people who are in the same situation that you're in. So I think that's one piece of it. Um, the Second question that you asked, I didn't fully track because I got so excited about jumping off into that first pool. Um, but ask it again, and, and I'm there. Yeah. So just thinking, and this is almost for myself personally, um, but yeah. for I'd imagine a lot of CEOs out there, just like startup executives uh, in general, yeah. the coaching stack. Yeah. yeah, it's like your coaching stack. Do you have your your therapist that helps out those childhood issues? Do you have your executive coach that maybe helps you think about, you know, what is coming down the line? Do you have like a personal board of directors? Like what have you seen um, that your clients work with or what would you just recommend is that, that coaching stack? Well, that's a great question. I'm sorry. I didn't track it fully because it is such a good question. So what is the, um, what do the best executives kind of set up for themselves to kind of create success for themselves. Um, totally. Could be a couple things. Uh, I think of it in terms of like scaffolding, right? And um, so if you think about like walking by a building that they're painting, like the painters set across those bars, across different ladders to scaffold up. Um, I think that you should have some people that you can go to as peers. This is what's happening for me, what's happening for you. Uh, a peer mentor program or just a supporter where you can vent and blow off steam. If you can do that in a confidential environment where you can just say, this is what I'm going through. What are you going through? That's why I think we see groups of founders, uh, you know, at investor dinners, like locking up and spending a lot of time with each other because they don't have very many people to talk to within their business. 
right? Um, and what I mean by that is simply, you know, they say it's lonely at the top. And the job is so unique that it's really hard to confide in somebody that you work with. And at the mm-hmm. same time, when you are in that top job and you look to the board, sometimes the board can be a place that has your back and, and you can vent to, and, and, yeah. and other times it's not appropriate. Um, and so I would say what I've seen most common is high potential CEOs are bringing um, an executive coach who can specifically focus on an area that they think they've identified as a, as a weakness or an opportunity area. So one founder I worked with, he felt like he had a really big opportunity around executive presence and speaking, um, being comfortable speaking to the team. His company grew very fast and companies that grow very fast have this one thing that we don't really think about as a Achilles heel. And that is that every meeting turns into public speaking for the execs, (laughs) right? And they say that if you ask people if they'd rather speak in front of a group or die a few years earlier, um, people are legitimately scared of public speaking. A lot are. Um, and if that's true and you say, okay, I'm going to go build this company and you start with, you know, five of your friends and all of a sudden you're 50, that starts to get a little intimidating. But in this case, it went from, you know, <laughs> five to 5,000 for him wow. uh, very quickly. And so it didn't surprise me when he said, you're my coach for revenue. As I think about revenue, leadership, and, and hiring a CRO, and um, and he also had a coach around presence and speaking. He also uh, had a practice around um, kind of uh, personal, kind of uh, you know, kind of increasing his personal awareness, uh, meditation, inward kind of inward focus, uh, several different kind of tools in that in that area, right? Which I think we see a lot of people who are really. St- high performers at work are also people who focus on their kind of personal development too. Um, the, the strange thing about professional development is that as leaders, we often work on professional development for our teams way more than we work on it for ourselves. Sure. So when you think about that, then you realize that high performing leaders are also doing a lot of their personal growth work. Well, there's a real opportunity there to say, okay, well, what do I need professionally? How do I write a professional development plan for myself and uh, spend as much time on that as maybe a performance improvement plan for somebody on my team that I really want to keep but isn't doing a great job? You know, that's what I like to see is people who are going to spend time doing that. Does that mean they have a lot of coaches, therapists, and people in their life? Sometimes. And sometimes there's calmer moments where uh, there's not as much uh, stress over particular things and maybe they just work with one person. Um, so I've seen both of those things. Uh, oftentimes I have people that I'm working with who go, I'm so glad you're not my sales advisor and you're my executive coach because this is going on somewhere else. Um, and those are things that impact sales and revenue. So it doesn't surprise me that other stuff comes up. And likewise, sometimes those same clients will say, I need you to put on a sales advisor hat on and just tell me what to do about X. I say, okay, here are three models for that particular sales challenge. Let's talk through them. Um, and, and that's, I think, one of the fun parts of my job is that I kind of get to, to pick and choose kind of which box I show up in. Um, for founders who are listening to this podcast and thinking about kind of where do they want to be as executives? Maybe they've founded a company or maybe they're moving into an exec role or maybe they aspire to, to an executive role. I think the idea is you threw out there. Uh, one, personal development. 
figure out what you need uh, on a personal basis. That could be pursuing, you know, therapy that could be pursuing, uh, you know, a wellness practice that maybe it's, uh, spending more time on physical wellness, going to the gym or, or doing a program, uh, could also be doing a meditation program. I've seen a lot of really positive results from people who are, you know, kind of, you know, chewing on that. So that's one, you know, get, get your own house together, you know, and make sure you're in positive relationships and that you're, and, and that you've got a positive relationship with yourself, right? That's part one. Part two is what do you need professionally? Where are the gaps? You know, I actually just recently, I've got it right here. Um, one of the coaches on the team at Reachable is a certified Hogan facilitator. And uh, Hogan is a, an evaluation that helps you identify, um, it, it says, results-based overview of strengths, values, and challenges. Right? Mm, okay. So this is a six-page report that a coach gave me on my strengths, my values, and my challenges. I've been spinning out over this for like a week. because, And it, not in a bad way, I, you know, but in a... Oh my God, there's so many opportunities to think about. Where do I want to be? What's working? How do I double down on the stuff that's working? Right. That's what I mean about knowing where you show up professionally. What is it you need? The client who identified that public speaking and presence was an area for him. Great. I'm so glad he knew that. He figured that out fairly early, doubled down on it. And um, and we didn't spend any time in that area because he had a plan. And he was going after that plan uh, for himself professionally. And then when the revenue challenge became a challenge, then his COO had introduced us to say, hey, you guys should work together while you look for a CRO. Um, so personal, professional. And then there's this area of mentorship. Because I think that mentoring is very different than coaching, by the way. It's often somebody who's going to share a story or an antidote or an experience they've had that... Um, that you could benefit from because they're maybe one or two years in front of you. This is back to that kind of freshmen's being trained by the sophomores and the sophomores looking up to the seniors or whatever. Um, so as you think about that, think who in my life has been through some of the things that I'm curious about. And if I could be around them a little bit more, a great example comes from a, a client I have who knows that as a sales leader, one of his, his weak areas is also an area he's incredibly curious about. This guy is driven, uh, very driven leader who also has a passion for personal finance, but he's never had budget responsibility as a sales leader. He's had mm -hmm. team responsibility. He's had quota responsibility, but never has someone said, here's your P&L. You know, you've got a $700,000 budget to accomplish X. That's never happened. But he identified somebody in his personal life. I think it might've been his brother-in-law who had deep finance experience. I think he was a CFO at a company in the same town that he lives in. So he just started developing a list of things he wanted exposure to. And he'd bring projects home and take them to, you know, the family picnic and say, hey, can can we look at this spreadsheet real quick together and you tell me what I'm looking for? Um, you know, that's an area where I'm not super strong either around finance. In this case, you know, this client is very strong in finance but just hasn't made that jump into kind of the work finance area. Now he's starting to do more of that because he saw that and kind of got two or three years ahead of it. Um, that said, that can be really intimidating because a lot of us don't know what we don't know or we don't know sure. what we're going to need in the future. So then it comes back to curiosity. For me, one of the things I did early in my career is I collect job descriptions when I'd see jobs posted. That used to be that not to make myself sound super old, like the internet was definitely a thing, but the jobs that I was interested in were ones that were emailed around 
and I would just save them in a desktop folder. Oh, yeah. this is interesting. And, I, and then every couple of months I'd get them out and I'd highlight them. And these are jobs I had no business in being excited about. Right. I was a junior person doing a junior job with my head down as an analyst on a project. And I'd be like, what does the vice president of public relations uh, globally at this company? What are they what are the requirements there? You know, I didn't you know, I was years from even going to grad school and not even thinking like, oh, this requires an MBA. What does that mean? What classes are in MBA? Type, type, type. Go, let me look that up or go request a course catalog from somewhere to say, okay, what's in an MBA? Um, just being curious and following those threads and seeing like kind of what comes up for you. Um, that can be really fun. You know, painting a picture without knowing what colors you're going to use. Um, that I think is kind of the third pillar. Um, that probably means the personal board of directors. That probably means being intentional about who you stay close to. Um, one thing I think is really interesting is that mentors really want to know how their mentees are doing. And so I usually tell people that I'm mentoring. These are not necessarily coaching clients, but as a mentor or a former manager to people that have been on my team, I always tell them, look, I, as your mentor, I'm rooting for you, which means you have to tell me what the score is <laughs> because it's so easy to go, oh, I'm going to go call my old boss in the hard times. So people will call me when like bad stuff's going on at work because I used to be their manager. Like when you were my manager, how did you solve this or solve that? Because now they're in a similar role. And uh, those are fun calls to get because it's like, oh, you finally, somebody I couldn't talk to then now sees what I was going through. You know, totally. I love those calls. They're fun. So as a mentor, I want to make space for that and support that. But then I often will say, okay, well, here's, here's some ways I thought about it. How are you going to think about it? And- Excuse me, as I hear that, I go, okay, well, let's, you know, identify um, some of those things that you want to double down on. That gets really fun, you know? But as a mentor, I kind of get to laugh about, you're only going to call me in the bad times, you know? <laughs> so uh, what's good? Like, what's going on? Like, you, you haven't called for two years. Like, what have you been doing this other 18 months other than the situation yeah. you called about? Um and I'm just as guilty of not updating my mentors, even the folks I have talked about with you. I don't think I've called them in a year to be like, hey, this is what's going on. Or I still think about this lesson uh, all the time, you know, so um, a, an area for all of us to work on, I think. Yeah, that's, it's funny that you mentioned that because it's something like I, I sent out an update to some people uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It's kind of like the good, the bad, uh, the looking forward, the, the where that's I need great. help. Yeah, so yeah. I love this concept. I'll have to add you to that uh, email list so you can uh, see oh, what's up. Oh, please do. You know, what most people don't realize, uh, most people who are working at a startup don't have exposure to, is that your CEO probably has an, a list of investors or supporters that they send a monthly update to. And they say, this is what's working. This is what's not working. Here's an opportunity. It's kind of the same buckets that you just talked about, Grayson. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't realize that that's going around. And so as an employee, I always kind of had a hunch that stuff like that would happen because when I'd see these meetings and these updates or uh, boss present their OKRs, their uh, objectives and their key results for the quarter, I was kind of like, let me write this down a little better. Let me get a copy yeah. of that deck afterwards because if my second, third or fourth level boss is standing in front of a room full of people saying, my goal is to open an office in Japan, well, shouldn't I go figure out if the thing I sell can be sold there? You know, uh, it, 
shouldn't I think about like, hey, I got two or three companies that have an office there too. Maybe I should go ask them, you know, where they buy locally for products yeah. like ours. Um, and then I can at least up level the conversations I get myself into. I might get told to buzz off, but if it's my boss's goal, I think they're, they're crowdsourcing ways to be successful, especially executives that further along in their career. They're looking for people that can help them achieve the goals they have. Um, and so our CEOs are no different. There's a list of things they're trying to accomplish. They're emailing their board. They're raising money around it. And if you want to be in those conversations, then do things that are relevant to that list. Um, and if you don't know what those things are, well, then dig into some job descriptions and dig into some company updates, even at, you know, private companies, it's, you know, those updates are, are happening with the end of quarter or maybe another department level update. Oh, hmm, well, if this is what this department's working on and this department's working on this thing. Well, their boss who's over both departments might have a goal that looks like X. Well, even if it's a brainstorming exercise, at least you're using, you know, uh, using your mind to kind of get creative and think about those things. And, and yeah. sure enough, you might get lucky and start working on the thing that the company needs six months from now. And they ask you to be promoted because training is a big area for them or because they need someone who can open new offices or because they need somebody who can take the product feed, you know, feedback from the product features and help on the product team because we're running, you know, running out of people to hire there. Um, that's in desperate times create really cool opportunities for over uh overachieving employees i guess overachieving is not what i mean but uh future eager. future startup executives future leaders high potential leaders yeah future yeah. executives great way to think about it right um and if you want i don't know how much time you got but i got a good story on this very topic about a guy named ben who was on my team who uh can i tell you about about a future executive power move i saw yeah, no, that's like one of the core core like audiences of this uh, podcast. It's current yeah. and future, so we we definitely want to help out the future uh, executives well, out there. There, there was a guy on my old sales team, and I wish I had thought that we were going to talk about this because I would have pinged him for permission to tell you exactly <laughs> who he is. But he, um, he, he, things weren't going super great for him in sales. And it was around Thanksgiving time. He went home to see his parents and he said, hey, you know, I asked his dad, who's an investor, like, what could I do? And the dad gave investor advice. Where's the biggest market go there? Right. And um, and then the other thing that was happening for this guy is he was also kind of naturally nervous because he's making mm -hmm. sales calls in the office. There are a lot of people who could hear him. And the next biggest market was an overseas market that he'd have to make calls at night. And so he would go develop this client base of people he would call when no one else was in the office. And so he'd go home, get himself set up and make an hour or two of calls at home. And that's actually how he made his number. Well, sure enough, when it was time to, to make a plan to grow the business, the bosses all came to him and said, hey, we saw you've got more accounts in Asia than anybody else in the company. Tell us what's going on there. And that's an area he was focused in. And as he gave his updates, hey, here's some themes I see. Right. He gave his top three or five themes that was going on in the business. And they go, oh, that was pretty smart the way you put that together. And he goes, well, I'm glad you like that because I actually would like to work in product. And I said, huh, well, you're a salesperson. And I don't know if you know, but a lot of times salespeople get looked down on as, you know, just, hey, go, go get us that quota and then go back to your desk. Well, you know, he had set himself up to show how thoughtful he was because he had done a good job taking some advice from investors and friends around him. He had figured out how to get good at a job he was 
bad at. I don't think he'd yeah. mind me saying it that way. And then he used that opportunity to show people the skills and the you know the things that he wanted to show off. You know, and now uh, you know after spending a year in product, he basically kind of became a futurist. He knew where the market was moving. He started working on product, and then he identified some areas of opportunity and he's a CEO running his own company now um, that's doing quite well. And, you know, to see somebody who you're like, I might have to put this guy on a plan to he got invited to a board meeting I didn't get to go to, <laughs> to I just read about his company in the New York Times. Like I should be bitter, but I'm so <laughs> freaking excited for the guy because that's that's really, you know, that's cool. You know, and that's a that's an arc that was only over a few years. So if you're so if you're listening to this podcast, and you're feeling stuck. Well, identify one. What's that stuck feeling all about? Is there something that you can do to master the thing that, that that's slowing you down? In this case, it was it was cold calling and sales uh, and being kind of naturally nervous about sales calls. And then also, I'd say uh, find where kind of you think based on what you know where you're going. You know, I, mm. I like to tell junior salespeople, which I think this is true about all departments, but I just see new salespeople or potential leaders more than I see other departments. Sure. That I, I like to remind them that their level of expertise is probably beyond where they think it is. Right. If you're 22 or 23, you just came out of school, you're working your first job and it's a sales job, um, you might not think you're an expert in very much. And there are probably a lot of people in your life who are excited to reinforce that. You don't know anything, kid. Go sit down at your desk. Um, if Dennis Chidoba is listening to this, he was somebody in my life who made me go sit at my desk quite a bit. For every time I raised my hand and thought he had a smart idea at 23, he was like, kid, where's your desk? Anyway, um, no, I, I love the guy. But that was that was definitely something that would happen quite a bit. So anyway, let me tell you about this, though. The... Um, the person who's like, hey, I'm not an expert because I'm new, can do a quick inventory around, okay, what are the last 10 calls you had? And for salespeople, when we're talking to prospects, you know, think about a technology like hotel management technology. Um, a hotel management tool is probably something that the IT team at the hotel looks at every few years, which means that an IT director at a hotel chain is going to maybe in their 30-year career, maybe do maybe tops 10 evaluations probably sure. five evaluations of property management system. And if you're with me so far, you know exactly where I'm going, which is a sales rep who does 25 conversations a month with people who are replatforming their hotel management software. They've seen more change and they've heard had more conversations with people who are evaluating what makes a good platform, what do you need, what's how are you going to be scalable, how are you going to grow into the future. They've seen more of that in a month than somebody who's at the you know tail end of a 30-year career. Do they know everything? Absolutely not. Don't make my mistake with Dennis and think you know everything. Yeah. But do they know a lot? Are they an expert in this one little area of like what to look for in hotel management software? They really are. And, uh, and if you're listening, thinking, oh, I'm not an expert in anything. Well, you might be. Have a look at your calendar and say, okay, what are the last 10 conversations I had? Um, sure. You know, even somebody who, you know, think about, you know, you're a startup with 30 employees and you're trying to recruit. Your boss is out there doing interviews every day. Well, who's the boss interviewing? A bunch of other kids who came from your college? You're like, well, dude, I could go back and call all the guys that I knew from the dorms at, you know, Valparaiso or whatever and go get five interviews tomorrow. 
You know, I could be yeah. a default campus ambassador. Um, there are a lot of opportunities for things like that that people don't look for because they think, oh, I'm supposed to go do what the boss said, sit at my seat, be quiet, be focused. Well, go find a way to deliver value. People will notice that, they will appreciate that, and they will double down on you. That has been a very common theme, I think, across the you know the successful people who have gone from that individual contributor role at a startup to that startup leader. And one of my favorite things to ask is, is exactly that. It's like, how do you go uh, from that IC to that VP of sales or to that chief revenue officer? Um, something else yeah. that you mentioned, though, kind of a, a couple different times is this idea of like uh, strengths versus so doubling down on strengths versus fixing weaknesses. I'm interested in how you approach this with your CEOs, because I'd imagine you know this better than anyone, but CEOs are typically pretty weird people. Uh, and um, a lot of times maybe them fixing their weaknesses might actually not be, you know, the best use of their time. Like how do you handle like that sort of conversation um, or that like with your, your coaching clients? Well, I, that's a great one. I think it's really cool when you can uh, see someone's thought process to, are they going to fix something that they feel like is broken about them themselves? Or are they going to resource their company by going and recruiting somebody who's good at that thing? Um, it's kind of the old question of, do I want to buy something or build something? And gotcha. that I think is true with your kind of the personal strength too. In some companies and in most companies that are B2B sales driven products, well, those are companies where, where you can't always afford to just go hire a salesperson. And I don't think that, that you should, because if you, if you want to fix your sales problem by just going and hiring a salesperson, I think yeah. you miss out on, on the fact that you could actually hire somebody with the wrong background very easily. You know, 70% of first time VPs of sales are fired within six months. Yeah. Why is that happening? Well, part of why that's happening is they're being placed into the wrong role, which means the founder isn't spending enough time knowing who they sell to, right? Gotcha. Which basically means they're coming in as a salesperson to a product marketing job where they got to identify the, the, where's the product's going to be sold and who's going to buy it and how that's going to work. Um, I think that's a real challenge, you know? So I would just encourage people to think, you know, when they think through, okay, how am I going to, uh, whether it's develop a skill or find somebody who can complement that work, you know, um, I would say, think a little bit about not where do you want to, the, the question when I was coming out of school is where do you want to be in five years? I thankfully, I don't hear that question very much anymore. And I'm really glad that if that question has died, then I'll be the first one to go to the funeral. But if you change that question to what could you do or what could you like, or what do you think you might want to try? Um, you know, I think it's really, you know, I've got kids that are nine and 11. This is the perfect time where people go, what do you want to do? And what do you want to grow up? Who do you want to be when you grow up? And for a little while, my eldest said she wanted to be a ballerina astronaut. So we actually dressed her up for Halloween like that when she was little and she's like six. And so she, we got her a NASA costume and we sewed a tutu into it. And she was psyched. She was like, this is great. Ballerina astronaut. And then it turned into like ballerina astronaut, uh, with like, I don't know, veterinarian or something. And I was like, I don't really know if there's cows in space. <laughs> I don't know if cows in space want to dance market, with you. Yeah, like this very... is, this is getting, this is getting real niche Right. But, um, but what could you do? Right. Um, 
what areas are you interested in? For me, I always knew I was kind of interested in tech. It took a couple of friends to encourage me to, to go down that path. And, you know, I've also always been interested in media, but it took me 20 years to have the guts to sign up for the yearbook club. I didn't want to do that in school. I didn't want to, I didn't have a camera. I didn't think I could add much value. And so I got kind of scared of it. I wish I hadn't, you know, now, uh, you know, I, I'm a, a filmmaker and I've, I've made a, a couple of films, including a feature length documentary with a partner a couple of years ago. And that was great fun. And some of those times I got to even hold the camera, you know, um, but it was, I raised money and, and went out and shot a film. That's pretty cool. Um, I don't think that would have happened unless I had asked that question of like, Hey, what are the other things I could be interested in? Where could I go get this? Who are the partners that I could work with? I, I don't know anything about directing a film. I don't know anything about shooting a, a kind of a, you know, Netflix grade documentary, but guy I went to college with does and we became partners and we went out and, and we kind of, you know, went after that and I raised money for the film in the same way that I'd worked on that in the past. So, you know, I don't know if it's always going to be as easy as buy versus build in terms of, am I going to fix the things that I think I'm not good at? Um, but I would say that for anybody who is, who's thinking about that to find a way to get good feedback and be interested in feedback um, I think is a really cool opportunity. So um, here's, th- so what I'll do is I'll leave you with three ways to go get feedback. Way number one is go find a, a test, right? Like I was telling you about Tracy gave me this, this, this Hogan inventory, uh, which I thought was good. Uh, Reachable, we do an inventory that's like a 360 review. And I was fortunate enough as, a, you know, as a pretty junior employee, I got nominated for a leadership program and I got to do a 360, which meant that there were probably 10 different people who filled out forms and uh, a big analysis on kind of where I was at as an executive, as a leader, what they thought of me. That was really cool. And I'm glad I did that. Um, that's not the only way to get feedback though. Um, you know, there's a, a few free versions of personality inventories that are online. Uh, look for those by searching DISC, D-I-S-C. Uh, you can look for tools like Hogan and find somebody who does Hogan or reach out to me and I'll introduce you to Tracy. That's, I think, kind of step one. Step two is, you know, another way to get feedback is just to ask for it from people who are really good at the thing that you're curious about. You know, there's actually a, there's a strange YouTube channel that shows up in my feed, which is evaluating welders based on their skill and how much they could make per hour. I don't know anything about welding, but I look at enough other like crafts and kind of hand on hands on building videos that I think YouTube thinks I'd be interested in welding. Maybe I would be someday. I don't know. Maybe that's one of the areas where I should double down, but they evaluate these welders and they say, Hey, how much do you think this person should be making? 25, $36 an hour, whatever it is. Um, and I think that's really a trip. You know, that's interesting. Uh, could you do the same thing with your work? Hey, here's the thing I'm working on. Here's how it's going. Here are the, my results. Calibrate me, you know, ask yeah. a friend in another company in a similar role. Hey, where would I stack up if I was working at your company versus my company? Um, I worked with a few reps who are really good at doing that and learning, uh, you know, essentially learning across the industry about other people in the role. So that second is just asking peers. And third is finding an appropriate way to ask people more senior than you to give you feedback and evaluate. And um, I got to tell you about one of my favorite sales reps I ever worked with was this gal named Brittany. And Brittany was a new employee and she had asked me to sit on on a call to see if she had learned the pitch. And so she, she identified a prospect. She set up the meeting. She got it on the calendar. We did this. It was like 10 o'clock on a Tuesday. 
And uh, I, I always say in situations like that, what role do you want me to play? And she gave me a job. She's like, I want you to give me feedback on one, two things. She had a couple questions and then she said, and if we get to this part, if they're interested and they want to buy and we get to like, I think it was like pricing, we get to this point where they ask about pricing, will you just take that? Cause I'm not ready yet. Mm-hmm. I go, sure. Happy to do it. Right. So I had a job. I listened to the part. I gave feedback for the part. They were interested. I gave them pricing and Brittany ended up closing the sale. Great. You know, or getting it on the road to close. I'm, you know, I think that one eventually closed. But two days later, around the same time, 10 a.m. Thursday, she sets a meeting with a company that looks exactly like the last prospect. In fact, their names were actually very similar. They sold the same thing to the same people based in a similar location. We get on. I was like, didn't we just talk to these people? Like, I'm having days job doing. And she goes, no, no, no. We talked to somebody that was similar. You know, it was like onlineshoes.com versus onlineshoes.io. I don't know. It wasn't IO wasn't a thing then. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Very, very similar. And so she sets us up and I said, well, what's my job? And I expected her to say the same thing. Listen for one and two and then do pricing if this comes up. She goes, no, no, no. Your job is to listen to one and two and see if I took your notes well and if I improved. And when we get to pricing, I'm going to give it a shot. We give me feedback on that also. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. And sure enough, not only had she gotten feedback, she had taken it to heart and she had done a great job in the second call. But she also showed her manager how fast she can iterate on feedback. So naturally got me to double down and, and spend more time with her because I saw her coachability. I saw her quality of work. And excuse me, I realized this is somebody that could go a long way if I spent more time. Now that might be also true for the people that she sat next to on the sales floor but they didn't do the same move. You know, they didn't have, they didn't go out of their way to make sure that I saw the same opportunity for them. And I worked with some of the freaking best people in the world. So there was plenty of other opportunities and I spent a lot of time with a lot of my people and I'm so close with many of them. But, um, but I love that approach. And I tell people about that a lot because that's something you can do right now, regardless of level, regardless of company, regardless of manager, you can ask for feedback for whatever you're doing. And you can show your coachability from that feedback, or you can decide that your manager is wrong and get the heck out of there. That's an option too. Don't forget that. But likely there are some things that you could be doing better that somebody who's been in the role a little bit longer or appear in another organization can give you support with. And those are the things that, you know, that's, that's free feedback. You don't have to go and do a, you know, extensive coaching program or hire an expensive resource to go do. You can go do that right now. And also communicate to your bosses that you're coachable and that you want to go far. And then naturally that you'll be the, you'll be coming up in conversations about some high potential leader summit within a, you know, the next few months, hopefully. Um, those are the types of things that I hope get created from real go-getters. And I know from talking to you that your audience has, has got a, quite a few of those where people who are future execs that can't wait to go do the job and, Hopefully they don't, you know, get into a situation like I was, you know, early on where somebody's sending me back to my desk all the time. Uh, I got in trouble because I misspelled February before <laughs> Microsoft Excel. Microsoft Excel didn't spell have spell yeah. check. Yeah, but, you know, Excel didn't have spell check. Word did. Uh, and and I misspelled February. I didn't know how to run spell check. It was like a toggle. Now things are, you know, red squiggles everywhere. Yeah. But, uh, but it's those little things that discourage me that could have been an opportunity to say. Well, spelling yeah. important for an analyst job? Like, 
the numbers in that thing were right. I, that was the area I was most worried about is getting the numbers right. Um, but sure enough, uh, it was like in school where you always say, oh, the spelling count on this teacher, uh, that one did. Uh, but but anyway, I digress. I, you know, I think there's an opportunity for everybody out there. And I hope that anybody who's heard this podcast goes, okay, there are things that I can do to ha- have a little control of my own professional trajectory. Um, and, I, and I hope that that's something that, you know, that that's uh, taken well and, and is encouraging. Yeah, no, I love that. A couple, a couple other questions for you. Yeah, I'll bring it yeah. back to the ex- executive coaching uh, side of your business. Um, and then I'll, we'll be able to let you go here in a, a couple minutes. But uh, so consulting, advising, this whole industry, it seems like it requires a, a lot of trust to be built up beforehand. Mm-hmm. So I guess like a two-part question here. Do you agree that that is like required, like there's a lot of trust that needed. And uh, I guess the second question is how have you actually built up that trust? How do you get these CEOs of these big companies or these executives at these, these big fast growing companies? How do they trust you to, to come with these problems that yeah. could change, you know, their, their whole life and their, their company trajectory? I think that's an interesting one. And, and it's depending on the role that you're in, you may hear this answer in a couple of different ways, but one thing that um, was shared with me years ago that I really liked was a book called The Trusted Advisor by David Meister and, and team. Mm. And okay. in that book, they talk about the trust equation. If you just Google trust equation as you listen to this, you'll see what I'm talking about. But it's essentially uh, thinking about four elements of trust. Credibility is the first one. And credibility is what do you know? A lot of people will test my credibility in terms of have I worked on a sales team similar or have I had results with other clients? Is that credible? Do I know enough to do the job? I think I mentioned that to you at the top of the show of like, you know, people are often looking like, have you done this job or have you worked with somebody doing this job? That's credibility. What do you know? Reliability is what do you do, right? It could also be what have you done, but really what do you do? Like, are you showing up when you say you are? Right. Like we were going to do this recording a week ago and I had to cancel and I felt horrible about it. And I had to cancel in the worst way because somebody else had to send you the note because I was preoccupied with a family emergency. And um, and I was like, oh, my God, I hope this doesn't take a point off. I don't know. I don't think about it that kind of tick for tack. But I do think, okay, I do need to keep in mind that the things that I do uh, really matter. Keeping meetings, showing up on time. You know, there's. There was some whole BS when I was in college about like, if you sat in the front row and, and talked to the teacher after class, well, that's building credibility, but it's also building reliability, right? Sure. And so a lot of the times we mix those two things up and you go, okay, well, I'm credible because I look like I'm smart. Well, no, credibility is what you know, how you do on the test, right? Reliability is what do you do? You know, if you look interested that's, you know, half the battle when you think about the college example, right? And then the third piece, I said there was four elements. The third element is intimacy, which is how do you make people feel? Can they tell you things that are important to them? Can they tell you things and not worry you're going to laugh and make them feel silly for, you know, if I told you my deepest, darkest fear right now, would you laugh? I actually had that years ago. I told uh, a teacher uh, something that my brother had 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 done and really embarrassed me. And so I told that teacher and that teacher laughed and I was crushed. 
And I remember it like 30 years later, I can tell you exactly who that person was, what the situation was. I remember better than anybody else in the room because it was how I felt. And then the last of the four elements is self-orientation. Are you doing it for yourself? Okay. So now let's run through a real situation. I'm going to go buy a car. I get to the car lot and I'm talking to the rep who's, who's, who's showing me some cars. All right. Are they credible? Well, what do they know? They either know about my driving patterns based on the car that I drove in on, or I ask them about a particular car that I've been researching and they know more than the research I've done. Great. Mm-hmm. They know stuff. What do they do? Are they making eye contact? Are they with me? Or are they looking around to see the other leads that are coming in the lot? Because she looks like she might buy a sports car that's more expensive, you know, and that mm-hmm. kind of flighty eye contact is something that kind of uh, can, can really hurt trust because about reliability and what are you, what are you doing? Uh, intimacy. When I say, look, I want this car, but I'm not sure if I can afford it. Mm. Does the, does that sales rep make a joke about being able to afford it or, Hey, we'll run your credit. Let's find out. As opposed to uh, a nicer way to put that is look, there are some other options that this doesn't work. And if you're more comfortable, you can give, you can share with me some of your information and I'll give you an estimate based on the other approvals I've seen for loans. Right. Maybe when they say that they lean in a little bit or they bring their voice down because they're on the sales floor. They want you to feel comfortable or they say, Oh, I I didn't realize you had this concern. Would you like to step into one of the offices and talk through that before we look at options? That's showing up and meeting me there, but that's making me feel comfortable as opposed to laughing in my face. And then self-orientation. This is why I use the car dealer example, because it's the most expensive thing you're going to buy in the most transactional environment. I'm never going to see the car person again, most yeah. likely. And if I'm, even if I'm in a small town, uh, I'm going to buy a car. It's going to last for anywhere between three and 30 years. You know, and Whether or not I interact with that person again, or even if they have that job again, or they may go work at, you know, go sell Dodge Neon somewhere after this and not, uh, not even be at the dealership if I come back in a day. Um, that's why a lot of us don't trust because we think, oh, they're doing it for commission. Mm-hmm. Now, if I was in on the other side, if I was selling a car and I wanted to make sure that it didn't feel like it was for my commission, then I might be tempted to be maybe open about commission or maybe say, look, here's what's better for me is if you bought this really expensive car. But I don't think that's better for you. I think you should buy car A or B instead of the expensive car C. Okay, well, this person just told me what was better. Right now, there are ways yeah. to hack that and kind of be, uh, you know, manipulative. And I don't want people to do that. I would rather them hear this and go, "Huh, that's interesting." So I told you four things, four areas: credibility, reliability, intimacy, over self orientation. Now, think about somebody you work with that you trust quite a bit. Run through those four elements. Are they the smartest person you know? Highly credible. Do they uh, always show up for you? That's you know, that second piece, right? Reliability, you know, do they make you feel uncomfortable? Yeah, sometimes. Okay, that probably hurts your trustworthiness score. If you feel like you yeah. can't tell them everything or, or share what's going on in your life or you might be embarrassed about something, you know? So anyway, so those are elements of trust. I think about that a lot because it's just the easiest way I've heard trust put. You, your yeah. question was more pointed, which was like, why do CEOs trust you? And um, honestly, the CEOs that I work with who are having sales anxiety, something is going on or they're not re- achieving a result or they're not able to 
perform at a, a level they they want to or think they should be able to, uh, they they come very vulnerable, and how I handle that matters quite a bit. Oftentimes, gotcha. I'll lead with, "Here are some things that I've seen in this situation." They'll want to know where I've seen that, how I've seen that. And when I share with them the experience of how they go, oh, that's credible. Yeah. But a CEO, like I said, like the example before was like CEO at Series D restructuring their board. I haven't spent a lot of time with that. I haven't spent yeah. a lot of time on fundraising. So when they ask me about fundraising a $100 million round, they're going to know right away. Look, I don't know about these things. Yeah. But I know a heck of a lot about doing things that are make you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And if you want to have that conversation, I'm here for it. Let's close the door, find a whiteboard, get a pen, and let's go. You know, that's very different, I think. And so I don't know if that, but that's why I think people probably trust me is is that, but maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's an area I could go elicit more feedback in. Sure. Well, typically um, on this podcast, we talk a lot about progression, and we talk a lot about progression in terms of, uh, hey, you know, you're a sales manager, you want to become a VP of sales. I actually want to reframe how I how I ask this question to you, since like I said, hmm. uh, you work with a lot of CEOs. When you're a CEO, you're not necessarily um, becoming like a higher ranked person hmm. in the business. Um, so when you're thinking about progression with CEOs, how do, how do you deal with the fact that everybody needs to feel like they're progressing? They can't exactly... Um, like I said, become CEO level two, CEO level three, stuff like that. They might be in like a sales role. How do you, yeah. How do you deal with like progression for someone who's in a CEO uh, role? Yeah. Well, what I think is interesting is like when we think about our CEOs that we work for, regardless of what level we're at in our job, it's really easy to think here's this person who knows everything because they have access to more information than I do. Here's this person who, um, has a bigger following. Well, of course, because there's a whole company looking to them where you might just have, you know, a department looking up to you. It's easy to kind of put that pedestal out there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I work with some CEOs who are leaders in their industry from a technical capacity or, or perspective, right? They're former professors. Like one of my coaching clients was a professor at MIT. Uh, that that in, in a class I would never get into, by the way. But... <laughs> When I think about someone like that, it's like, well, he still has a lot of development goals that we're talking about on a regular basis that he's working on. Um, and that's that's pretty freaking cool, honestly, is that, um, you know, the beauty of kind of the human experience is that we all look and think, okay, this is the thing that I want next. You know, I told somebody years ago, a good friend of mine, I told him like, hey, this is my dream scenario is to go be an advisor to venture back CEOs and get a chance to work at a venture capital firm while doing that. Because when they spot founders that it works for, they make bets and they double down on them. I told him all that. And then years later, I was, you know, kind of whining about a, a situation. And I was like, I, I wish I was doing this or I wish I was doing that. And the, the, sure enough, the goalposts had moved. And he shut me down. And he's a good friend. And so he's allowed to do that. He's he's built up his trust points and goes, hey, you're doing the job that you described to me that you wanted to do. Because sure enough, I had been a, a entrepreneur in residence at a venture capital firm called 500 Startups. And I was working with Batch 21 and 22 on sales and helping the 
investing partners double down on the companies that it was working for. I was doing everything I told them I wanted to do. It's just that bar had moved. I was like, oh, I wish I was at a bigger firm or I, I wish I had, you know, uh, we were writing bigger checks or I got a chance to see these companies raise series A or B. And those things all happen over time, but I just wanted them now. And I think we can all yeah. relate to that feeling. But, um, but anyway, yeah. So, so your CEO has goals. And your CEO's goals are something that are personal to them, most likely. And there's also some goals that they'll be public about. Um, there are areas that they feel like they um, they can't uh, compete. You know, one thing that I has caught my attention lately is this. Uh, there's a comic named Neil Brennan who has a Netflix special called Blocks. And he was one of the creators of the Dave Chappelle show uh, or the Chappelle show with Dave Chappelle. Um, but uh, Neil Brennan has this great special, but he also has a podcast also on YouTube where he goes, I'm going to interview my friends about things that get in their way. You know, writer's block gets in your way of writing. Well, there's also other types of blocks, like other things that make you feel like you're not whole or complete or able to perform. His first person to interview was his buddy, David Letterman. Right. Which I would love to be an experience. Oh, and my friend, Dave Letterman. But anyway, so he interviews David Letterman, who talks a lot about imposter syndrome and about how every time he had a bad show, he was just convinced they would take a show away. He spent 35 years or 40 years or whatever on the air looking over his shoulder, thinking he was about to be canceled. You know, and yeah, finally, you know, his career moved on and and they, they things changed. But he was it valid to be looking over his shoulder almost every episode for 30 years. I, you know, he's probably one of the, one of the greatest talk show hosts of our, of our lifetime. Um, and that's the way he thought about that job. That really made me think, uh, okay, well, if Dave Letterman has imposter syndrome, it's probably okay that I do too. Sure. And when I say that and people are like, okay, you got the career that you wrote on a whiteboard five years ago that you wanted and you just went out and got it. Uh, but there are days I don't feel like I'm worth it. There's days that I don't feel like, uh, I can earn my keep. There are days that I feel like, uh, I'm never going anywhere and never going to achieve that thing I wanted to do. Um, the bar keeps moving for me too. People might hear that and go, that's weird, but it's okay if I do it. Right. So we all look at ourselves a little more critical, uh, and we think about how we show up more critically than other people that we might look up to or other people that we might appreciate, other people have been on the path a little bit longer. Um, and that's really intriguing to me. And honestly, a little bit um, of a consolation prize, right? I may feel like I'm not there yet, but these other people do too. You know, yeah. I, you know, I had this job years ago and I really looked up to the CEO and then I moved on to do other things. And I bumped into him at like, at a, uh, a workout center, a gym, or it was like, it was like the area outside the gym where people like get coffee or whatever. So I don't know if you actually call that. I, I could say I bumped into him working out, but we were getting coffee. Um, and I saw him and he had a particular sales challenge. I was like, Oh, this is great. Cause I'm thinking about being a sales advisor or, or a coach. And he asked me this question and I, I put it back to him and I was like, Hey, uh, uh, have you thought about this or that? Or what did you do in your last company? I said, that's what did you do at the last company? He goes, this is my first job. And I was like, oh, shit, I didn't even think about that. Like, yeah. you see how this company, I've been looking up to you for years, and this is your first job. You've just been doing it longer than I have. Like, you know, and uh, I, that, that was interesting to me. I was like, oh, that's, that, that's a lot of bias that I'm presenting. You must know the answer because you're CEO. And he's saying, look, I don't know the answer, man. I'm trying to figure yeah. it out. And some CEOs are humble and some are not. 
but many of them have a challenge that you don't know about or something going on in their personal life that it's not appropriate for them to tell or share with you. And the fact that everybody's going through something makes me think, you know what? It's okay. Even the people we look up to have challenges, which means it's okay for us to have challenges too. Well, I love that. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap it up there, Ryan. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, super, right on, super Grayson. appreciate it. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to take a moment? How can people find you? How do you have a website, email list? How, how should people get connected with you? Yeah, I think the easiest way to get connected is find me on LinkedIn. Uh, J. Ryan Williams uh, should show up. It's actually, that's part of the URL, linkedin.com slash IN. J. Ryan Williams is all one one word. And, and you'll find me there. Um, there are a few other ways to, you know, kind of we can connect kind of from there. Uh, you'll see my coaching practice. Uh, the website is itchreachable.com. Uh, you can check that out. If you want to work with a coach, but you don't like me, that's fine too. I've got five other coaches on the team who show up with some very different backgrounds. All of them are experienced revenue executives from, you know, companies like Stripe and Square and DHL and Charles Schwab and, and, and a huge depth of experience. Uh, so check out that team if you're interested and, and reach out to me and I'll, and I'll help you find a coach if that's something that you're looking for. Um, or just, you know, continue to swap stories like we did today. Well, sounds good. Thanks, Ryan.